Zero Foxtrot does not profess to share or promote the opinions and beliefs expressed by show host or guests. The Stay Zero podcast was created to provide a platform for servicemen and women to share their stories. Due to the nature of this podcast, sensitive topics will arise. Conversations about combat, PTSD, drug use, and other such subjects will occur. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Stay Zero podcast. I have Jessica Garner here with me today. Thank you, Jessica, for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, and so start me off with kind of what your role is with the Austin Police Association and what you're here to talk to me about today. Um, well, I'm the appointed vice president of the Austin Police Association. I'm also a police officer in Austin. Um, at the association, I, you know, advocate for our officers, their, you know, working conditions, benefits, things like that. And then um, I also have, you know, patrol responsibilities, as does everybody at the Austin Police Department right now due to our staffing crisis. Oh, nice. That doesn't sound too good. The staffing <laughs> crisis. How did you come across being a cop? What was your journey to that? Well, um, it was a long one. Um, I was actually probably the oldest one in my cadet class uh, when I went through the police academy here in Austin. Um, What's the normal age for a police academy? I would say mid-20s. Okay. Um, you always have like that person that, you know, kind of grew up in a cop family that, you know, the moment they are 22 years old and eligible, like they are there and they're ready to go. And, you know, by the time they're 45, they can retire and, you know, live this great life with a pension. Um, but most people, like it takes a minute to kind of figure out like, okay, this is what I want to do. We have a lot of veterans. So, you know, they they have their time in the service. So I would say like mid-20s is pretty okay. average. Um, Middle-aged woman is not average. Um, and that's definitely what I was. <laughs> so, um, so you weren't a cop family? Not a cop family. Did you go to college? I did go to college. Um, I went to NYU, um, wow. where I was in a program in the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where you're kind of just given freedom to take classes across the university. And at the end of four years, you defend a bachelor's degree, kind of similar to the way you would like a doctorate Oh wow! Um, on a smaller scale, obviously. What did you go to college for? Um, so I had kind of a mix of like sociology, pre-law, um, psychology, just kind of this like cultural exploration of like law and politics and how they all just kind of go in this like cyclical nature. And we always kind of end up right where we started. <laughs> and you you know, is there a, a way to break out of that? And so far, I've, the answer is no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a goal? Did you want to be a cop then? Um, so... You know, I kind of always wanted to be a cop. Okay. Growing up. Um, like my mom will tell you that That's number of times costume. she had to tell me like cops was not an appropriate television program for like, you know, a seven year old to be watching. Like she would find me watching it and I would just be like, oh my gosh, like look at this. This is amazing. Um, but you know, you kind of grow up and and you kind of create expectations for yourself and um, sometimes you can lose track of like, what what are you capable of, right? Yeah. Um, and so I found myself um, going to law school um, and becoming an oil and gas attorney. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, for about eight years. And I looked around and I thought, well, like this has been a good experience. I've found success in this job. Like, why am I not happy? 
Mm. Like, like, what is missing here? Money wasn't enough. The money was never enough. Wow. And that is like one of the biggest lessons that I have ever learned is that money does not buy you happiness. Now, it makes things easier. Don't get me wrong. It like, buy you a boat. It can get you a boat. It can get you a nice house. It can, you know, take some stress off, right? Sure. Um, but at the end of the day, like, what's in your bank account is never going to make you happy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I come from you know, a family of service, not necessarily law enforcement, but, um, you know, my dad is a highly decorated Vietnam veteran. And while he had already left his time in the army by the time I was born and growing up, you know, that kind of servant heart, you know, it doesn't just go away. Sure. Um, and so, you know, while becoming a cop is the last thing I think that he ever wanted or even expected from me, um, it's kind of his fault. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, he modeled this kind of like, you know, life of service where, you know, when somebody needs your help, you show up for them yeah. in whatever way, whether it's, you know, in a volunteer capacity, whether it's your friend, whether it's your neighbor, um, like you show up for people. And and I think a lot of that has to do with how I ended up here. Yeah, your dad's a, v a really interesting person. I had a great connection with him when we met. Did he talk to you about that at all? Um, Yeah, he did. A little um, bit. He's a maniac. I mean, <laughs> like, if we're being honest, he's a total maniac. He's hardcore. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, I I, th I think I'm going to get him on the podcast as well. He's yeah. agreed. And so I'm Good. hoping that I we hope can. So. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, you know, sometimes he just, he sits there and he's like, how did we end up here? Like, you know, you have a great college education. You have a law degree. Like, you were successful in this you know, this career, it's not like I was struggling as a lawyer sure. and it was just like throwing my hands up. He's like, how did we end up here? And I'm like, look in the mirror, man. <laughs> like, how do you think we ended up here? Yeah. Like, what know? do you think it is about being a policeman that scares him for you? Um, do you, you know, think I he's think scared? It's, I is, think it's what do you twofold. Think that is? So, you know, never once has he discounted my capabilities. Like he knows that like I take the job seriously. I train, like I'm physically fit. Um, I do all the things I need to do to keep me safe. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's like an inherent risk with being a cop, right? Sure. Um, it's just part of it. Um, I think more of what concerns him, not it, not as like, oh, is some maniac going to you know shoot my daughter at work today? But it's like, what does the life of a cop look like? Mm. And, and kind of how does that maybe... Um, impact, you know, my personal life, my, you know, friendships, my family, things like that. I definitely want to get into that. <laughs> yeah. Walk me through uh, what was the academy like for you? You said you were older, you were female. Were there a lot of females there? Um, was it what you expected? So we had a, a decent number of females. Um, we okay. graduated around 60 cadets um, it, when when my class went through. And I think there was 11 females, um, which is actually a pretty good representation. The law enforcement profession um, teeters around 11 to 12% on average um, at the at a department. And, and that's kind of right where we stand at um, Austin Police Department. Um, we definitely have hopes of recruiting more women. But um, in the academy, I would say, um, you know, being a woman was never something that was a challenge for me. I was never treated like uh, by my peers, by my instructors. I was never treated differently because I was a woman. Now, I was expected to perform at the same level as everybody else. Like, I didn't get, you know, an easier task, mm -hmm. um, but I had the support I needed. Um, 
the academy at different times was was challenging, um, physically for sure, challenging. Um, I for- how so? What so, was like what you, do? you know, I didn't grow up like getting into like street brawls, like. <laughs> You know, like, you know, I was a high school cheerleader. So okay. like, there wasn't a whole lot of like, you know, you know, rolling around, like punching people yeah. um, in, in my childhood. Like my home was very strict of like, you do not touch your sisters. Like, yeah. Like there's no hitting here. Um, fortunately, I did a lot of training beforehand. Um, learned to learn to box, like learn some ground fight, fighting and stuff. But it's just physically demanding when you're not used to spending eight hours a day, like getting your ass whipped to then walk in and spend eight hours and get your ass whipped. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's as much a psychological game as it is like a, you know, a physical game. I've heard that the mat training was, was pretty difficult from a few of my friends. Like you're going to get your ass whooped in there. Yeah. That's part of it is to get your ass whooped. It is. Yeah. yeah because uh, as much a, like I am not ever going to be a jujitsu, like extraordinaire ever. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Um, but like there are certain things you can do to keep yourself alive and safe yeah. um, for the three to five minutes it's going to take to get somebody else there. Yeah. And being able to fight through that and not give up is as much of the goal of that training as it is to learn to like pretzel yourself around somebody. Yeah. Right. Um, so it, it was grueling. Um, I have pictures of just bruises, just covering my entire body, like just my arms, my legs, everything. Um, but it works. Like if you do it the way that you're taught, it works. Luckily, I think people who train jujitsu are, are very unlikely to fight a cop. Like I see the most control in their emotions and their behavior and their lives from people who train to an art like that. And so as a, as a policeman, I would think if, if you could just manage the position, mm-hmm. control of your weapon so that they don't take it from you, yep. like that's a major Yeah, one, weapon right? retention is a huge thing. Absolutely. Like you can you can just control a fight without throwing a punch or, or really just defending yourself until, like you said, somebody mm-hmm. comes along and helps out. Yeah. And, you know, in the point of like, you know, you get in a lot of physical altercate. If you're doing your job right, mm-hmm. I, that probably sounds wrong, but if you're doing your job right, like you're going to put your hands on people. Yeah. And you're going to need to control people that are different size than you. You know, I'm 5'3", very rarely was I like trying to control some a 5'3" woman. Oftentimes it was a 6-foot man. Um and so it What was what, that like for you? <laughs> First time you had to put your hands on a man. Uh, uh, like what on a really a, big man. <laughs> yeah. Um I will never forget it. Yeah. Um, it was, I had been cut loose off of my, uh, field training period for a very short amount of time. And this kind of crazy call comes out, um, of a woman chasing a man in her vehicle. He's running barefoot down the street. She's chasing him and like, and screaming about like a sexual assault that just had just occurred. Um, I get there and this is quite honestly the largest man I've ever seen in my life. Like he's huge. And I look over and this woman is like pointing at him, is has visible injuries. Like there's no question here of like, who's the victim? Like what happened? And I'm like, oh God. Like the I have to Don't make me whoop your ass. Yeah, like I have to control <laughs> this man. Um 
And based on the last time I looked at the map, like it's going to be a minute before anyone else is here. Yeah. Um, and so like my voice is, is what I relied on, you know, like I walked up to him and like, I squeezed his arm. Like, I mean business. And I used a really big voice. I was like, put your hands behind your back now. And it's like, you know, that presence that, you know, like my uniform was sharp, my hair was pulled back. I pretended like I knew what the fuck I was doing, even though I was like the whole time in my head, I'm like, oh God, oh God. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, and, and you know what? It's like, you just, I cranked his arm behind his back. Like I wasn't messing around. And, you know, and fortunately he complied. That's but as I'm, you know, kind of, we call it going out on this person. Like I'm thinking like, okay, like what are my options here? Sure. If I put my hand on this guy and he pulls away from me, like, what am I going to do about it? Because what I can't do is probably like fight this guy. Right. Like I'm going to have to like use leverage points. Like I'm going to have to get him to the ground and then I'm going to have to get distance. Yeah. And like, so that's the constant, like, you know, you're, you're planning, you're, you know, creating these like strategies for like, what am I going to do? Because oftentimes it's going to be a six foot man. Yeah. I that, mean, I would, th I would think you, in my head, I would hope that they had the presence of mind to take it one step farther. Like, you know what? You might win this hand on fight with mm -hmm. me. You're not going to outrun the radio nope. and you're certainly not going to outrun the judge. Right. If I walk into that courtroom with a black eye, how do you think that's mm -hmm. going to go for you? Let's get through this situation mm -hmm. in a calm manner and we'll deal with it in the courtroom. Right. Otherwise, you are going to lose this battle, whether or not it's the physical mm -hmm. altercation or yep. not. And that's the like, that's your presence. Right. Like you have that message should be like subtly being told with your word choice and with, you know, the tone of your voice, whether it's a loud voice, whether it's a soft voice yeah. uh, and just your presence, you know. Because I'm, I'm sure y'all watched them. I mean, maybe y'all didn't, but in the academy, I've we've all seen those videos of cops on the side of the road. They're by themselves most of the time, and they get a hold of a suspect that just ain't having it, mm -mm. and they beat the hell out they of do. them. And in a lot of ways, they have the upper hand because until until you know that that they're not going to comply, like a lot, they'll act. Like, oh, oh yeah, let me mm -hmm. put my hands behind. And then it's just all of a sudden they catch you looking away or they catch you doing something and they sucker punch you or they pull a gun or whatever. Or they run. Or they run. I, I had that happen to me really? like, not that long ago. Like, I thought, mm, this guy's probably not going to comply. Hmm. But so I said, hey, man, put your hands behind your back. And I went, took his arm. And, like, right as I was getting my handcuffs out, he saw his chance. Mm -hmm. And, you know— looking back, it's like he had telegraphed to me what he was going to do because I, he turned his feet. Oh, and I yeah. didn't think fast enough yeah. to be like, hey, this guy's about to run. Uh, and so, and he pulled his arm away and he took off running. Um, but the one thing in a foot pursuit you're not going to do is you're not going to outsmart me. Like, I'm going to know my area better than you do. Okay. Um, and I'm going to have my resources, my helicopter, my, my canine. Like, I'm going to get them there. And, you know, we're like, you might be running now, but... But like, yeah. we will get you. You're not going to outrun, I don't know, Fido. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So do you have like a designated area that you patrol? Yeah. So before I went to the association full time, um, I worked um, in a specific area and um, called Ida Sector, which is actually not far from where we are right now. But um, 
It was, um, it's one of the most, it's one of the smallest sectors in the city because it has the highest call volume. Um, and it, and it's a fairly violent area. How long were you assigned to that sector? Uh, three and a half years. That's where I went straight out of the academy uh, by choice because, you know, I'm one of those people like, if we're going to do this, you, like yeah. we're going to really do it. Um, and so that was my number Keeping one choice. Up at night. Mm -hmm. That was my <laughs> my first choice sector and I got it. And, um, you know, you, you learn really fast. I bet. I bet. What are... I, don't, I hate to say favorite crimes. What do you walk into and you're like, okay, this is something that I like to solve or I like to deal with or a, a type of incident that I like yeah. to help people yeah. with? Easy question for me to answer. Sure. Um, robberies. Okay. Yeah. Robberies are um, my favorite. <laughs> I'll call it that. Yeah. Um, the thing about a robbery is you are oftentimes one trigger pull away from a homicide. Mm. Um, you know, we have a Are lot they usually armed. We have a lot of armed robberies here. Um, we have, what are I mean, they stealing? What are, are there's the thing is like it, a wallet, a anything. phone. Yeah. You know, really we have a, we have a huge problem with juveniles committing aggravated robberies in this town. Um, what makes it aggravated? That's when you have, um, a weapon. Okay. Um, or you, um, seriously injure somebody. So kids running around your district armed robbing people. Why do you think so my wife had her purse stolen at the mm -hmm. domain a few years ago okay. and this little fucker was so fast. Mm -hmm. Like I think he was 14 years Did old. Did he just rip it off her? So we were sitting at a restaurant in the mm -hmm. back patio and it, I remember it was Veterans Day. I was with two or three other Marines and we were we were eating lunch and she got a phone call and so she stepped away from the table and she sat next to this like metal bar fence that was yep. with a sidewalk on the other mm -hmm. side. And I'm like, okay, she's having a conversation, whatever. And we continued on with our celebration of mm -hmm. the holiday. And all of a sudden I hear, Hey, that's my purse. And I look over and this kid had like reached over the fence, grabbed her purse and just took off running. And she looks at me and I'm like, shit. Yeah. You better start running, man. Husband time, right? Like <laughs> yeah. I, I have to do something. Right. <laughs> and so luckily I had shoes on and I take off running. I step on a chair. I step on a table. I leap over the fence and it's game on mm -hmm. through the domain. And I could not catch this oh, little yeah. fuck. Yeah. And, and we're just running. And I had left my pistol in the truck, which is a good thing. I don't think I would have used that anyway. I know that would have yeah. not been a justified Pro moment yeah, probably, to shoot somebody. Yeah, not ideal. <laughs> but, um, like, I was trying to catch him. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know, like, if he is armed. Like, at that point, it's probably good that I then don't what? Yeah. have that. Because mm -hmm. I could tell he was young. Yeah. And... Uh, he found there was a vehicle driving around that had a single gray door. It was a white car. You could tell it was, mm -hmm. it was crap car. And they, he jumps in it and they take off. Mm -hmm. And I remember that I was yelling as I'm running. I'm like, stop that kid. And this guy walks out of like Macy's or something uh -huh. with bags. And he jumps back and puts his hands back. I was like, you fucking pussy. And I run by. <laughs> and you could just see like I ripped the soul out of him when I ran by. I was so mad at that dude yeah. for just like just being a bitch. Uh -huh. And and I turned around and there must have been six or seven dudes chasing him with me. Yeah. Which was awesome. That's cool. Like, yeah. We all lost, but it mm -hmm. turned out he uh, he had an ankle monitor on. Mm -hmm. He was 14 years old, and his uncle was taking him to the domain to steal purses. Sure. And 
is it the is it the the loophole of the juvenile uh, justice system that they're using kids for that because it's not they're much not of that a, organized they're not okay. they're not thinking yeah <laughs> yeah these are not criminal kids. masterminds that we're dealing okay. with these are just like you know like that kid probably runs faster than his uncle that kid doesn't have a driver's Fair license assessment. Right? that yeah. kid may not know how to drive a car yet yeah and all they did was go to McDonald's and spend like fifty bucks mm-hmm. and then dumped it in the trash yeah. That's the thing is like they're not this isn't yeah some sort of like organized like criminal operation. This is just like an example of like adults being absolutely like worthless yeah. um and perpetuating a cycle of criminal behavior. What I didn't expect was what it did to my family's mental stability because my head immediately goes to they have the keys to our car. Our address. They have our address. Mm-hmm. They have a vehicle that they can drive straight to my house. They know we're not home. Mm-hmm. And now it turned into like, how do I get home as quickly as I can before we really get robbed? Right. Or like sleeping on the couch in the living room for a week in case someone comes in to to whittle the locks, you know, like we change the locks on the house mm-hmm. and and then it's the credit cards and the social security oh, cards awful. and all yeah. the things. I'm like, you motherfuckers. All like, for McDonald's. <laughs> so you could go to McDonald's, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, I'm glad that they didn't have more of a malevolent mission mm-hmm. there. But man, you don't know. Right. And like, and while I say like, okay, these aren't criminal masterminds, right? Like, you can't operate with that kind of level complacency, of complacency. Yeah. Like, you still have to take all of those extra steps. Change your to, locks. Yeah, change your to protect cards, yourself, protect yeah. your family. Um, and, you know, because every once in a while, we do have kind of a more organized operation come in from, you know, San Antonio or Houston. And um, I don't know if y'all remember when the jewelry store was robbed on Burnett Road. No. You know, we had, you know, we had, that was probably, I was still a pretty new officer at that time. Yeah, I think I was on FTO, actually. Um, so it's going to be, you know, 2020. Um when they, you know, came in and, you know, they shot a security guard, um, you know, wow. just last week we had, you know, Lakeline Mall being, you know, robbed. I and then they, you that. know, I was actually working that day. Um, right now, all of our, uh, if you're an officer or detective or corporal not assigned to a patrol position full time, uh, you have to work what we call backfill. Um, non-patrol sergeants do as well just because of our our staffing. And so I was actually working that day in a patrol capacity. Um and, you know, it's this idea that, like, we have, you know, crime moving kind of, you know, what I call West, right? Like, you know, a lot of these, you know, criminal, especially violent crimes are, are have typically been an East of 35, um, you know, predominantly an East of 35 issue. But, you know, I'm just working a regular patrol shift and, you know, on an afternoon, I think it was a Wednesday, you know, mid-afternoon, you know, early evening and, you know, a couple young kids, like probably, you know, whether they're technically juveniles, you know, probably 18, 19 years old, go into Lakeline Mall, you know, rob a jewelry store. And, you know, just for the heck of it, they, you know, shoot off three rounds into the ceiling of Lakeline Mall. Wow. Um, and so then you've got like, you know, this, do we have an active shooter? Like, right. what, you know, what are, what are we dealing with here? Um, and, you know, it, even as a cop, like the aftermath of that changed my behavior in that area. Like mm. I had to go to Lakeline Mall to, you know, pick up something, you know, two days ago. And while I typically have like a gun with me, it was like I almost I did like a double check. Like, okay, like this is in my, you know, my pouch here, right? Like, okay, 
it's in there so I can get it out quickly. You know, those things yeah, where yeah. like, <clears throat> you know, so, so even for a cop, like the aftermath of like a criminal event, even that I wasn't a victim of, you know, I can, I can change yeah. my behavior, much less had I been like a victim, like your wife, sure. you know, and your family. Yeah. So these kids, just like the mall, that's a big thing to hit. Like they have security mm-hmm. there. Are they just snatch and run? They're breaking through the glass. Is this an, an active rock? Like, did y'all catch them? Um, so they are, that's an ongoing investigation. Okay, but, sorry. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> this uh, was last week, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So like I said, like I, I love robberies. Like I find them, like I said, what, you know, they're one trigger pull away from a homicide or, yeah. you know, an aggravated assault. Um, and so I try to like, I try to pick our robbery detectives brains. Their supervisor has been a, you know, a pretty great mentor to me. Um, and so I try to stay pretty engaged with, with them. But, um, you know, the Lakeline Mall one, as like, as this was, I mean, our dispatch and, you know, our computers were updating, I'm thinking, you know, the play, the, the jewelry store, I mean, use that loosely, um, that they chose, like, it was pretty central in the mall. And and we, I know that mall pretty well because we do a lot of, um, like, active attack, like, response training when, like, like at nighttime, we'll rotate through there and do, we call it cast, counter assault um, strike team training, and we'll train, like, with sim rounds for active shooters nice. in the mall. So, like, I'm familiar with the setup of that mall because I've like been through that training a, a couple of times. Train, yeah. It's perfect. Like you've got the food court, then you, and you've you got might multiple. Actually, be called there, <laughs> and you've got multiple levels, <laughs> yeah. right? So, like you know, where are you doing your casualty collection points? Like all these different things that you know you can train in that facility, and then flip the you know this time you're going to enter this way. Like it's it's a good place to train. But anyway, so the location of that jewelry store it was pretty central. Like so, they had to come into the mall, and then to get out, they they went up an escalator to then go out to where they had parked. And I'm like, like, do they just have, are they not scared? Like, do they just know they're not going to get caught? Mm. Because the thing is, is Lakeline Mall has no security cameras. Really? None. Wow. That's foolish. Um, And so I'm like, are they smart enough to know that? Or do they just not care? And do they know that like, we are so short staffed right now that the likelihood that somebody is able to get there fast enough to catch them on the way out wow. is so small that. Do you see many organized, like, like when we were growing up mm-hmm. in the, I mean, I, in the eighties, nineties, we had the serial killers or we had like, what is that point break where like, it's yep. a gang of buddies that are mm-hmm. knocking off, you know, do you see that anymore? I don't feel like, I feel like that was the era of the 90s. Are people getting caught now and so they don't get to do serial hmm. crimes in that way? Or what's changed in that? Well, you think that this is a gang of dudes that are just waiting for the next jewelry store to hit? Probably not. Um, so there's So Austin is unique in that like we do not have a traditional gang structure like, okay. um, like other major cities do. Um, it it truly is so bizarre that there's um i can't remember if they were a department of justice they were based out of california and they came to austin kind of under this task to kind of evaluate like our gang situation here like how are we handling it and after like a couple of weeks he was like i don't understand what y'all are dealing with here <laughs> like i don't think i can be of help wow um because it's so not we don't traditional. it's not traditional it's like 
you know, you've got like three guys that today are this random, you know, you know, five, one, two crew. And then, you know, one of them pisses off the other. And and then the next day, like they're, you know, in this other gang with four members and, you know, then the next they're like, oh, I'm a gangster disciple today. Like, you know, it's just, it's not, we don't have like your blood, your crips, like in all of your, you know, sex, you know, that you would typically see in a major city yeah. like Houston, Dallas, you know, New we York. We have the population for it. We, we do. Yeah. Um, and, and I can't figure out why it hasn't developed here in that way. Hmm. Um, but I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, because the version of gangs that we do have, like they don't, live by any like honor or code, hmm. which, you know, that's one of the, I hate to say it, but like upsides of a gang culture that has been like established and that law enforcement understands because their leadership, like at, you know, they have principles. Now they're not necessarily principles that we would all, you know, ascri- you know, prescribe to, but like they're a little more predictable. Um, They are a little, they have a lot more control over themselves and over their people. Here, it's just like, well, I'm mad at you today. So I joined this other gang and so I'm going to shoot up your house. But yesterday, you and I were in the same gang. Yeah. And so it makes it a, it's a unique challenge that we have here. But in terms of like serial killers, like organized crime, um, you know, we have it. I mean, serial killers are over portrayed in the media, right? Like, because they're so interesting. Sure. um, like well, we don't lo- see them anymore. Yeah, but I mean, the Gilgo Beach, right? Like we just had um, in Long Island, like the Gilgo Beach killer. Oh, I didn't he, know about this is that. Somebody, this is a serial killer that's been operational for maybe more than a decade at this point. Maybe in Long two Island? Two decades. Yeah, and like he was caught like a month ago. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Like just a regular guy. Maybe like an accountant or something. How did they catch him? Um, so I think it was an old piece of DNA evidence. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. But um, but yeah, so. Maybe that's why. I mean, the technology, the DNA. Mm-hmm. St- I know they found some guy in San Diego from like a 23andMe sort of situation. Yep. Yeah. So ancestral uh, like gene- genealogy is a huge step for cold cases. Um, I never should have done that 23 and me. So that's my so serial that, killer days are yeah, over. So that's so that's the issue, right? It's like <laughs> when nobody realized or nobody had understood the potential for these like familial matches, mm. you know, nobody cared. And like right. they would submit to the database, like say, sign a waiver. Nobody reads a waiver anyways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then law enforcement had this. I mean, that's how the Golden State killer was, yes, was caught, guy, right? Um, yeah. And there's this detective, Paul Holes. He's a just kind of this like, famous cold case detective and he kind of helped develop this um process for using you know genealogy to solve these crimes and um but now like you know your your average person that is like a little skeptical skeptical of government is like no thank you yeah like i'm not gonna and i'll do my dna but i'm gonna check the box that says like you cannot put it in any database for for law enforcement yeah i definitely did it before i was aware of all of the government Uh (laughs) so if any of your family members have been uh committing crimes like it's your fault they're caught Uh but yeah Wow. Okay. So robberies are Mm -hmm. your bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing that I, you know, if a robbery, if I'm working patrol and a robbery comes out over the radio or over our our computer, like, and and everybody that I work with knows, like. Yeah. Yeah. 
actually. Are you hoping to to do that as a detective? Do you want to be a yeah. detective and chase those? Yeah. So I'll be eligible to promote um, at our next uh, corporal detective test, which will be probably the first quarter of 2024. Okay. Um, and so I've, I spend time, we call it riding out with the robbery unit. Um, okay. I go to a lot of trainings um, on my own, actually, um, like different um, like interview and interrogation trainings, um, like John Reed and Associates, like the Reed technique is um, has been around a long time. What is that? So the Reed technique is just kind of um, this like process for interviewing and interrogating. They like they use it overseas. Like the, a lot of like our CIA interrogators are trained yeah. under this. Uh, obviously, with different rules than <laughs> than like a municipal law enforcement officer. But the pr- principles remain the same. Of you know how you're developing like a rapport. You're noticing cues. Um, you know like how you are- mentioned the feet on that guy earlier. I've read a few books mm-hmm. on interrogation mm-hmm. and just reading people and how to tell a lie. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that in a book I can't remember what it was called. I think it was um, the language or something of every body, but mm-hmm. every and body were separated. Yep. And one of the things he spoke about a lot was that they would put them behind desks that had nothing to cover their feet. Mm-hmm. And the their main focus was on their feet. Yep. They'll, people will do, you know, these nervous tics mm-hmm. or they'll... And it doesn't tell them that they are lying, but right. it more or less it, it displays an anxiety mm-hmm. that they're feeling. And why are you feeling that? And then they'll dive deeper into that line of questioning. And it was a fascinating book. So, so I will. I would take it even a step further. Like I won't let them sit behind anything because I don't want them to be able to um, mask in rest kind of yeah. their hands or arms on a, a de- because you know the more things we can touch, the more stable and centered we feel. So, like I don't want them to be able to lean on anything. I don't want them. So it's like if. So like if I asked if I ask you a question and like you you're going to lie to me or it's like a particularly messy question like we see this a lot when um, you're interrogating or interviewing a suspect of child abuse or uh, sexual assault like, you know, those are some some really like, you know, horrible subjects. Right. And if you see somebody like take a big. You know, like they're trying to separate themselves from the question, trying to separate Mm -hmm. themselves from the behavior. Um, or like, you know, somebody has been sitting like that, you know, with their feet on the ground, just like kind of relax or whatever. And then and you ask a question and there's like a big shift. It's like, OK, like, again, it doesn't tell me that you're lying, but it tells me Got that something yeah. about what I just asked you has had a physiological impact on on your body right now. Yeah. And so you have to, you know, be paying attention to their answer, but you also like you know, nonverbal communication is such a huge part of the way we communicate as humans. We have to be paying attention to that also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is your mouth and your body line up? Yeah. And typically, like, if they don't line up, the body is telling the truth. Yeah. Rarely is the mouth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. Oh. So what are some of the the harder ones? What are the calls that you like, man, I'll be glad if I'm the last one there? Yeah. Um, Suicides. Those are those are hard. Um, now, interestingly, like suicides, like a gunshot wound to the head, um, like those are not as difficult for me. But um, and I don't know why. I can't figure out why. Um, but like a hanging or and anything with like you know a, a kid, like um, I'll 
like one of the worst calls I ever went to was um, the younger sibling of a, you know, at a birthday party drown. Um, and like in the pool, in the pool. And like, you know, you know, pull her out doing CPR. And it's just like, it's gut wrenching. It, it is. And like, you just hear the scream. Like, I still get goosebumps sometimes. When I think, like, I hear the scream of the mom. Like, um, and, and really any, like, you know, anytime somebody comes home to find their loved one deceased, and it's like, you, there's these just like these gut wrenching. And like, I have to say in my professional face, like, sure. you know, I'm doing CPR on this child or this, you know, person that, you know, somebody loves, like they're a brother, they're a daughter, they're a mom, they're a sister. Um, and you just hear the outward pain of the people around you and you have to stay professional, like, and because they're relying on you in that moment to, you know, you're the one they call to be rational. To, yeah. Like, yeah. and this is something that, you know, I try to remind people that are, you know, very critical of police all the time. It's like, no one's calling us because they're having a great day. Yeah. So imagine your job day in and day out is to show up when somebody is having the worst moment of their life, whether they've just been a victim, whether they have been a victim over and over again, and they haven't gotten, you know, the justice that they want or need or the support from their community or whatever it is, like, you know, they feel like you've failed them over and over again, despite, you know, you continuing to show up for them. Yeah. Um, it can become, you know, it can be grueling. I think that, that is for all policemen. I don't, I mean, my hat's off to you for doing the job. I was spoiled. I, was, I did the firefighter route. If you have the upper body strength and want to be a first responder, be a firefighter. Yeah. Man, that is the life. <laughs> I'm like, these fuckers out here playing pickleball and I'm going to deal with this lunatic with a, a knife in the middle of 35. Like, man, if I could just do a few more pull-ups, yeah, <laughs> I could yeah. have had the good life. I mean, when we would go on these, like, a hostage or whatever, I remember it's like, no, we can't go in. The police have to clear mm -hmm. it first. Like, yep. ooh, yeah. I'm glad I'm not that so, guy today. Yeah. <laughs> like, let us know when it's mm -hmm. clear, buddy. Yep, uh, the classic stage. Yeah. Fire and EMS yeah. are staging. It's like, okay, well, I guess I'll head in then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you're right. There's a spectrum, mm -hmm. right, of... Adults doing things that adults do, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes those things are tragic. Uh, my dad was a police detective in Georgetown and okay. then the justice of the peace in Williamson County. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I turned 15, he took me to see my first dead bodies. Mm. And it was really driven around driving. Right. He's like, I don't want you speeding. So he took me to see a crash. And there were, you know, three deceased girls that were teenagers. Mm -hmm. And they just ran a stop sign yep. and got T-boned, and that was it. And it probably slowed me down for four or five days, yep. I would say. <laughs> yep. But I remember it, you know, and the suicide, mm -hmm. um, Georgetown Parks and Rec Recreation director uh, was accused of getting his granddaughter pregnant and killed himself in yep. his garage. And stuff like that, you're like, wow, that's, that's interesting. Probably did the world a favor there. Yep. But you're right. When it's an innocent victim mm -hmm. or it's just the happenstance of tragedy, yeah. like those are difficult mm -hmm. to shake off. Yeah. You know, and I'm a hostage negotiator also. And really? So, yeah. Um, and so I see a lot of. What was that training like to do that? Um, so you it's it's 80 hours. It's not as much as like you would think, but it's like pretty intense. Um, a lot of it is scenario based. Um, okay. training. So, um, you know, we say hostage negotiators, but oftentimes it's, you know, 
a barricaded subject, somebody that has just, you know, committed a crime and they are refusing to exit, you know, their residence or they are, for example, like just, you know, maybe a month ago now we had, you know, a guy shoot a cop and he refused to come out. Yeah. Like he, South Austin, he came out with a shotgun and after we conducted a welfare check and um, he, you know, shot at his neighbor's house, he shot at police officer and fortunately it was, you know, birdshot. <laughs> so like, you know, but I mean, his hands all screwed up, his, his hand and his face. And, um, and then from he, the dog, <laughs> yeah, no, the officer from the, yeah, oh, from the, the birdshot. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and you know, we returned fire and ended up, you know, like, did you just want to go to prison for the rest right. of your life? Like, like what was your, yeah. so, like, what did so, you think was going to happen? So they call the hot, so hostage negotiators deploy with our SWAT. Anytime our SWAT team does a warrant service, um, anytime our SWAT team, um, goes on a call out, we deploy with them. Um, and you know, there's various roles that we have, whether we're the one talking to the subject, like trying to make contact with them via phone, um, whether we're the one on the, you know, loud speaker, you know, telling them to, to come outside, giving them instructions. So you try to get them on the phone one-on-one mm-hmm. and what's the strategy for that conversation? Yeah. So that's where the training comes in is like, and that's really what I will say like hostage negotiation training is I've never been more exhausted than like I will put that on par with ground fighting as a cadet in terms really? of just the actual f- exhaustion that came with that training. Um, because you're on the phone and you are using like, it's basically active listening. Um, you are, you're not lying to them. You're not uh, creating a false narrative of what happened, but you are using, you know, active listening skills like empathy, mirroring, um, you're trying to build rapport. Um, and, you know, while so you- So I hear you saying you don't want to leave the room. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, and, it, and sometimes you're just like, ugh, you're like, could you just fucking come outside? This is ridiculous. It's like three in the morning. Yeah, like I am exhausted. Like get your ass out here. Someone Quit bring us a jam and blow this right. house up. Like, <laughs> and you know, and, it, and the thing is, like, you know, SWAT's like, you know, sometimes putting gas in there. You know, whatever they're doing, you know, operationally, and you're just like, and the guy's like, my eyes are burning, my, and I'm like, well. It's nice uh, out here. This is one of, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, when we were first talking, I explained like, you know, we could avoid, yeah. you know, if you just come outside, yeah. like just walk out your front door with your hands up and your hands empty and just, you know, follow the instructions of the officers outside. It's like, you know, I want to hear your side of the story. Like, I understand there's always two sides. Like, you know, let's figure this out. Let's work together, you know, kind of creating this like, hey, we're a team. Mm-hmm. And you know, the biggest mistake a hostage negotiator can make is overestimating the rapport that they've built with somebody. Mm. Because like, if you try to put yourself on the same team of somebody that's like, I don't fucking know you. Yeah. Like, you don't give a shit about me. Like, you are back to square one. Yeah. So it's it's an art, I will say. Um, I'm sure the instructors that you train with know exactly how to play that game. Oh, yeah. Where and you, you just, out. And you, yeah. And, like, I actually went to, um, so at Texas State, they host um, every year an international hostage negotiation competition. Um, and I was the lucky candidate that was the primary negotiator for the APE team this awesome. year. Um, and I was on the phone with 
the and this is like you know the FBI is there, ATF is there. Um, we have you know the Aus- like I think it was Austria, like they sent their like national police force, hostage negotiation team, like international teams, Australia, Canada, you know, all, you know, tons of agencies from across the U.S. Um, and like I was on the phone as the primary negotiator for eight hours. Holy shit! And it's like this you know ridiculous scenario that like probably is never gonna you know we're never gonna see anything like where you've got like seven hostage shakers you know all this stuff yeah and yeah. like they're passing it's a bank robbery and you're movie. having to <laughs> yeah and you're having to like build rapport with like seven different people and stuff and but it is truly exhausting um but good training and um i was all i cared about was just was beating the fbi team and we did so awesome <laughs> yeah well so that done was, so that was cool that, but uh, what are the what how do they measure that like how do how do you beat them what what made you win yeah so you have like kind of like experts in that field that um, have all these metrics that that they're judging you by. And, um, you know, sometimes it's things like, um, like the technology that you use. And for being the 10th largest city in the country, I will say that in terms of technology, the Austin Police Department is like (laughs) woefully behind the curve. Um, Yeah, like you'll see um, agencies, like smaller agencies, in Central Texas will show up with like a command post that looks like it's out of Hollywood. Wow. Like, and you're just like, oh my gosh. Whereas like I use an iPhone on speakerphone, like my city cell phone. With your clipboard. Yeah. That <laughs> that the SWAT commander and SWAT lieutenant will have like a Bluetooth speaker connected to so that they can hear like if I'm making progress to, oh, wow. to direct like their operational choices. So it's um, not the Samuel L. Jackson kind of scene that right. we're, we're all envisioning. Whereas like, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's Georgetown. Like they come in with like this Mack truck that you're like, oh my gosh. Like, wow. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, we make do. So, um, yeah, so there's things like that. Um, there's thing, so you have a whole team, like hostage negotiating is a team sport. Like you do not do that alone ever. Okay. Um, on a jumper, like if you have somebody that's going to, you know, threatening to jump, like you, you're you not going to deploy like a whole team. Um, you're usually going to have two, a primary and a secondary, and then you're going to have your uh, like repel team like that's holding like. Your so that's a very stuff. different t- style of hostage mm-hmm. negotiation. Yeah. So you're we're not... responsible for both. Wow. Mm-hmm. What do you, what's the strategy for helping someone that just doesn't want to live anymore? Like how do you get through to a person who no longer sees value in their life? So I've had one like that, that, you know, I was like, nothing we're doing is working. Yeah. And at that point, um, you make a plan to grab them. And like grabbing somebody that is threatening to jump is rarely the answer. Mainly, it's a huge safety issue, right, for sure. us. You go um, over with them. Right. Um, but once the, once you're, har- you're in a harness and, you know, there was one where I looked at, uh, you know, the supervisor on scene that he's like, he is an incredible negotiator, um, like can help me navigate when I feel like I'm just going up against a brick wall. Like he always helps me like zig and zag and gets back on track. And I looked at him and I was like, and he was like, like, we have to grab him. And so, you know, at that point, you like sneaking up on him in the dark. So, like, what, what, well, how do so you, I'm still talking to him. Uh, like I'm standing there talking to person yeah. or on the phone. No, I'm standing there talking to him. Like me to you. Me to you. Wow. Uh, yeah. Little, little further little away. Further He's away. like, stop there. I'm yeah. gonna jump. Right. Like I'm not like right up on him 
for a lot of reasons. I'm never going to be right up on anyone yeah. at work for any reason. Um, like I'm going to have like, you know, an appropriate distance. Good shooting distance if necessary. Well, yeah. And like, you know, I need, I need a reaction time. Yeah. Um, and distance is your best, best friend in, in reaction time situations. But, um, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, my job then is I'm going to keep him engaged in conversation with me um, while like the two SWAT guys behind me and then a couple patrol guys are going to make a plan to to grab him. Um, so I'm basically just distracting him and buying time at that point. And then, you know, I'm going to just kind of use a slower tone like lower my voice, like make him have to like lean in if he wants to hear what I'm saying. Um, and then I'm just kind of watching them, but without tell, like I can't keep shifting my eyes because, sure. you know, even somebody that's not trained to pay attention to that stuff, like they pick up on human. They'll views. look where you like, look. Like if I start doing that or if I'm like, Look you behind know, him. Yeah, look mm -hmm. behind him. Or if I um, am pausing too long between like my words, they'll know I'm listening to my radio. Um, so you have to be like pretty cognizant of, like maintaining your normal behaviors so that you don't kind of like show your hand. Um, and fortunately, like they grabbed him. Like I kind of had him facing me. They grabbed him and um, he was really mad. Um, and, you know, we we took him to a hospital to get some help. So. Um, you ever have any follow up with, with people like that to see what happens or if they get their lives back in order? Or? Um. They just oftentimes jump the follow without up telling is anybody the next, next time. time that I see them. <laughs> um, so, so no, in that like, you know, there is you know a, a privacy element, right? Um, mm -hmm. I could probably track somebody down, but I don't really want them to remember like that low point. Like if they are doing well, like I don't need to like unnecessarily remind them. Now, if they ever sought me out, hundred percent, like I would go to the ends of the earth to like meet with them, whatever they needed. Yeah. Um, but if they are motoring along and like, I'm not going to try to like re-engage with them um, because I don't know how maybe that's going to impact them. I think there's probably some self-preservation to that as well. Like you don't want to be emotionally attached to every case you get you assigned. Can't you can't Yeah. You, you would drown mm -hmm. in that. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you manage that stuff. Um, well, I <laughs> sometimes I manage it well, sometimes I don't. Sure. Just just like anybody. Um I I have a very like robust mental health kind of support system in place. Um is that through the department or in your personal life? So that I, <clears throat> that's personally what I do. Our department does um offer like all types of um, you know. Therapy, EMDR, all, all the things that... What's EMDR? So that's the eye movement desensitization. Uh, Laser psychedelics. Yeah. <laughs> I've so, heard of this. I've it, never done it, but I've heard about it. So, you know, the research shows that EMDR is like one of the most effective um, ways to process trauma. And... Um, Have you tried it? Yeah, I've, I've done tons of EMDR. Really? And it's um, like I can honestly say that it is worth every penny that <laughs> really? that it yeah that what it is, costs. what happens how does that work what so are they the, doing so the way that they're so you have this kind of process where you are talking to like this person that's trained in that like 
you can't just get any therapist off the street. Like it's a very like specific training that they do. Um, and they walk you through kind of these like so you have an event. So let's, for example, like the child that drowned, mm. you know, so I'll say like the child that drowned, like, okay, what did it feel like when it was happening? Like, what do you notice when you think about it now? Like what are, so they kind of create this roadmap with this particular event because the whole challenge with trauma is when you think about an event, if you start to have that same physiological response as if it were happening again, like that's that's the dangerous way that trauma continues to live within us. Mm-hmm. Like PTSD, all those types of, you know, kind of trauma disorders are all hinged on this idea that like we are reliving this event over and over and over again and not in a way that it's like that happened. Um, like it was terrible. Like I recognize that. It's like, oh my God, it's happening again right now. And that's what our body and our brain think is going on. And so through this process, they, whether it's like um, vibrations of some kind, like some, some device, like, and it's like, you can turn it up, you can turn it down, but basically it engages each side of your brain and it like, like it'll tap back and forth. So you're holding it and it'll be like going back and forth through each hand. And it causes your brain to like subconsciously activate both sides. Because the reason that the trauma is still living in you in the way that it is, is because it hasn't, the neuropathway hasn't been created to transfer it into the side of the brain that it's meant to live in. Hmm. So by, by activating both sides of the brain while you talk about that event in this safe environment starts to develop that neuropathway for you. Wow. Um, sometimes it could take, you know, five or six sessions to even start to like break through the barrier of that, of that traumatic event. Um, it's just, you know, different things have affected us in different ways. Um, and there are other times where, you know, your brain has kind of started to like learn like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing when I feel like both sides activating, this is why we're doing it. And certain things can be processed more quickly. Um, but even from like childhood traumas, anything that, you know, you know, may may still bring up like emotions for you now, like you can address all of that through EMDR. Um, in crisis zones, like um, after like a natural disaster or something, they'll do um, they'll do a different version of it where it's like, okay, like for like Red Cross or something that is just day in and day out seeing just like horrors of of what it has occurred um like they'll do like a butterfly tap like this and because they don't have time to sit around and like process what they saw that day because they're going to see it again the next day so Mm. that's more of like a okay i'm gonna i'm gonna like stay on top of it as this you know event unfolds and then you know they're in a better position to to process that trauma long term So you've done the EMDR, mm-hmm. and is there like an integration after that that you can do on your own? Or did you feel like you were like it fixed you or it healed you of of that issue? Um, so, like, I don't think anything ever fixes us. Sure, <laughs> like that. This is like you know, this is a an ongoing journey. And and the thing about like you know the job I do is that there's always something new. 
Mm-hmm. And it's it's fascinating because like, you know, I could I could see a torso on the side of the road after a motorcycle collision and like like, well, I mean, that sucks. It was down to his last Yeah, leg. like, ugh. <laughs> like, ugh. Yeah. Like, yuck. And then be like, okay, on to the next one. Yeah. Or that day, like I see a torso and I'm just like, oh my God, like I hate everyone and I hate everything. Yeah. You know, you just, you don't know what's going to, like what is going to impact you day to day. Um, And so oftentimes like you may have to like readdress an event or you have something new that you address. Um, But I think it's an ongoing process. Like, there's no way to, unless you quit whatever you're doing that like exposes you to the horrors of this world um, and just live in like, you know, a fantasy land of rainbow and unicorns, like there's no fixing anything, but you have to remain committed to like addressing these issues. Otherwise, like that's how, you know, people find themselves, you know, drugs, alcohol, suicide. Sure. Is there anything that they do in the academy to prepare you for the trauma that you see? Um, so we have different like instruction blocks on officer wellness. Um, and in those blocks, we, you know, we kind of talk about the different types of like behaviors we may start to see in ourself that are a reflection of traumas we may encounter. So they're not doing any type, it's not like an exposure therapy. They're okay. they're not like showing us like traumatic photos or traumatic videos. Now, like when you have your homicide block of instruction, like you are seeing photographs of homicide scenes. Yeah. So, so you know, there's really no way to actually like put you in a situation to like no experience trip. the trauma, right, <laughs> until you actually do it. But yeah. so what they do is they focus on um, like healthy lifestyle choices, like maintaining, you know, physical fitness, um, especially like focusing on certain types of physical fitness training in order to kind of like recalibrate your nervous system Mm. for like, this is something interesting. Like when I first started the four days that I would work, like I'd have energy, like I'd be good to go. That first day off, I would get like I'd be fine in the morning and then it would get to be like 2 or 3 p.m. because I worked the evening shift and I wasn't getting the adrenaline spike that my body was accustomed to those the last four days. And I would just feel like I'd been run over by a truck. Wow. And I'm like, I haven't done anything. To, like, why am I so tired? Like, I slept last night. Like, it's a day off. Like, I should feel great right now. And what it is, it's like I had become reliant over the last four days of that adrenaline spike. And now I was, you know, suffering from like basically this chemical imbalance. Withdrawal. Yeah. And so yeah. like what they tell you to do is to do hit a hit, like a high intensity interval training because it like it spikes your cortisol basically, which wow. is not ideal for other reasons. But like that'll that'll kind of like get you recalibrated your central nervous system functioning appropriately and you'll be you know be able to function throughout throughout your your week um i think in general just healthy diet and exercise and sleep are uh, and sleep yeah and sleep is the thing that are really really under underrepresented Mm -hmm. in in mental health and managing things like like if you're not doing those at least before you seek medicinal Mm -hmm. assistance or start hitting the bottle or whatever it is that people do like you got to have those pillars in place yeah Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like if you don't have kind of your basic like nutrition and like human functions operating correctly, then it doesn't matter how much therapy you do. Like, Which you're it's still going to feel like shit. It's hard to eat healthy on shift. 
Yeah. I I will tell you, like, having a gluten allergy is, like, a blessing and a curse. But the the blessing is that, like, at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, at, like, 35 in St. John's, like, there's not gluten-free options. Yeah. Um, and so I had no choice but to pack food. And that was a savior. Like, I, I would watch, like, my shift mates, like... They'd be going through Waterburger yeah. like for the second time in the night, and wow. I'm just, and I mean, of course, they're all dudes, and so like doesn't. But if I did that, like I literally would not fit in my patrol car. Like I'd yeah. be so fat, but <laughs> you know. So like, so I benefit. So my food allergy is the one thing that like kept my nutrition on track when I was working patrol full time. I have the same issue, and I feel the same way. Where like I can't drink beer. Yeah. And so beer and and wheat and a lot mm-hmm. of the things started. I just being 30, like my whole body changed somehow yeah. and it hasn't been fun no. at all. No. But, but you're right. Like uh-huh. when you can't eat that shit, mm-hmm. it makes you find, find things that <laughs> yeah, you prepare. can eat and prepare for it mm-hmm. and pack better food. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Blessing in disguise for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the other things that the Academy they do is they just bring in, you know, like EMTR specialists, like to educate us on like that resource and make sure that we know, how to access it. And then um, we have a peer support unit okay. that like, you know, is they're getting calls all the time of like, because it's not a, it's not a therapist. It's not a city counselor. It's like, you can call and be like, Hey, like I need help. And it's, yeah. you know, anonymous. And and so they, basically they just give us access to our resources and try to help establish healthy, healthy living. And you're also living in the world that, I don't know if it's our government or just the structure of our society where you're managing the things that are really kept away from the public. Oh, yeah. Like grandma dies. You don't just go see grandma. She goes to the um, mortuary. Yeah, the medical exam. Where she gets, you know, embalmed and Mm -hmm. put with makeup and her dress. And the only dead people you ever see, if you see them, are laying in a casket in a very calm Mm -hmm. manner looking as looking their best. Yeah. And that's not reality. No. Like that, yeah. Like you're not seeing them when they have the bullet holes in them. Right. <laughs> and and you don't see that. And, you know, we, the children, the all of it. And so it's like someone dies, we usher in and we take it away. Mm-hmm. And then they don't see it again until it's made pretty. Yeah. And so I feel like society has a very naive perspective of the realities of life. And it can feel lonely when mm-hmm. you don't you're exposed to it. Mm-hmm. And that's, and it's also not like, you know, it's not dinner conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not going to go to my parents' house and like, you know, my sister's in town and like, I'm not going to sit there and be like, you know, man, I showed up and um, this guy, like he'd been shot four times and like, I could hear, you know, that breathing mm. that where you're like the bubbly. Yep. The bubble, like you hear it and you're like, like this person's going to die, but like I have to try. Right. So like I'm going to stick my finger in this hole um, and then I'm going to like try to put a tourniquet over here. I'm going to have somebody else bring a chest seal and like, you know, Yeah. and then you hear the gurgle and you're like. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, do you feel like. And com- like, can you pass the potatoes? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you're not going to yeah. do that. <laughs> this ketchup looks a lot <laughs> like. like oh, man, this is really blood. like yeah. familiar. Right. Oh, uh, do you think. Like you keep to cops or y'all have little clicks where you mm-hmm. get that opportunity to do you, like some of the, was it executioner humor or the morbid humor where. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Like it's real bad. Yeah, um, I bet. And 
I think it's a defense mechanism. You to, have to. Yeah, like, you've got to release it somehow. You've got to if, sometimes make light of it. If and, you take it every if you take everything that we do seriously, like you will not survive. Yeah. You won't survive the career. You won't survive your life. Um, like, I mean, we had this insane situation where this car like flew off of I-35 and like in the middle of somebody committing an aggravated robbery in a parking lot and the car lands on the suspect and like i mean it was ridiculous right so uh, and i'm like i'm like holy shit i'm like listen to this wild ass story and my sister's like oh my god those poor people and i'm like never mind like no it was totally awesome yeah, I'm, like, was like, I'm like no i'm like the suspect got smushed <laughs> He was smushed and his girlfriend was just like crying and like there was like bootleg alcohol everywhere because the car club was coming. And I'm like, and she's like, oh, God. And I'm like, all right, well, this actually was hilarious. Yeah, I like the universe said not today, motherfucker. Yeah, like, <laughs> because my whole shift was like, I mean, we would, we're laughing our ass. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Because we're like divine intervention. Yeah. Like, here we go. Karma strikes. Yeah, again. like we couldn't wait to call detectives and be like, "Guess who is no longer your problem?" Yeah, and let uh, let me tell you why, you know. And yeah, we have. It, I mean, it's like it's off. The way we talk is awful. Um, it's and it's not to be disrespectful to like a victim. It's not to be disrespectful to a family. It's not. It is a coping mechanism. It is a defense mechanism, and it is the way that like you finish up what you're doing there. And then you go down the road to, you know, Granny Frickett, who, you know, thinks that somebody keeps knocking on her door and she's scared. Yeah. Because, like, you have to transition from that chaos to helping that, you know, community member that has no idea what you've just done or what you've been involved in. And you have to provide, like, a high level of service to her just like you do it yeah. everyone else. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a coping mechanism and it's a necessary one. Mm -hmm. Um, where it gets hairy is in is when the people who aren't a part of that group overhear it, right? Because then the feels come out, right. and then the oh, you shouldn't be an officer because mm -hmm. you you are cavalier you about thing. right, yeah. right? It's like man, y'all should have been in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. I got well, slapped with a dick in a bag, yeah. like yeah. <laughs> like what? Like, right, and it's like that's why, like you know, we have this. You know, you got to be your brother's keeper. It's like, hey, is our like. They like we're still we're still out here. Like let's go rally up over here. Or hey, like our you know we're done here. Like the call is over. Like let's turn our body cameras off. Like yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. Um, the whole body camera thing is like you know you're being filmed. Yeah, all the every time. Every single thing all you the do. Time. What's your is, opinions on the body cameras? Um, good, bad, and different. So you know I don't know any different, yeah. right? So like. Um, my opinion on it is it's the only thing I know. Um, now, I will say that they oftentimes are more helpful for officers than they are harmful. Mm -hmm. um, I personally have had to go to internal affairs for um, excessive use of force allegation. Um, I used force um, on, on this particular call, um, but it was force that was within law and policy, and my body camera very much supported yeah. You know, what I did and why I did it, how I did it, all those things. Um, you know, if if an officer is 
like not is critical of a body camera policy or wearing a body camera, they either are not used to doing it and there's nothing cops dislike more than change. <laughs> like we don't like it when things stay the same and we don't like change. Like those are two things cop hate, hates the most. Um, and so it's it may just be an unfamiliar thing. So like, you know, but it, I mean, we've had body cameras at APD for, you know. Quite a while. Yeah. I mean, we're going on maybe eight. Get probably getting close to a decade. Like we're actually the like the pilot for the United States Marshal Service implementing body cameras. Our Lone Star Fugitive Task Force um, mm. actually just got recognized um, by the um, the Marshal Service for being like that pilot um, agency and task force and showing like you know the highest level of body camera usage in you know these tw- in this task force world for uh, Marshal Service um, and like. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing now, like at APD, have we taken it too far where like if you are heard using profanity on your body camera, like that is grounds for your butt and internal affairs? Like really? Yeah. Like we just modified our policy where you can like justify profanity on body camera if like it is an excited utterance and not at a person basically. Profanity is a very useful part of our language. Well, you want to control somebody, you'll fucking stop. Yeah. Like like, it has an effect. Show me, like, hey, show me your hands. Motherfucker. Show me your fucking hands. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I am not fucking around right now. That's an escalation Mm -hmm. of force. Yeah. So, you know, so now we have this kind of caveat where we can, like, you know, in a stressful situation, we have an excited utterance or we use it for emphasis to, you know, well, to gain area. voluntary compliance. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, if you're a good writer, like you can make it work. Sure. Um, if you're not like, best of luck, like yeah. uh, call me because like I, I will likely be assigned to your internal affairs case <laughs> as your union rep. <laughs> it's funny. That's so true. Like I've heard when I was in the Marine Corps is like, man, you better learn how to write because you're writing these after actions. Mm-hmm. And same with the fire service. Mm-hmm. Like the way that you articulate is very important. And you could do everything correctly. And if you do not write it down mm-hmm. in that offense report mm-hmm. and articulate exactly what you did and why you did it, like you're screwed. And it, and it's hard for me as somebody that represents people in internal affairs all the time, like I have to I have to figure out how to like get this articulation through like because I'll see what they do and I know what they're thinking and I know why they're doing it. And then I look at their report and I'm like, "Dude, yeah, you got to put that in there." What the fuck? Yeah. Why didn't you write this? Oh, well. I didn't you know, I didn't think about it. I have a GED. Yeah, Don't like, blame me. Like, <laughs> oh my God. You didn't go to NYU. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say yeah, that law degree is um, a great tool for uh, report writing and, you know, PC affidavit, search warrants, like all those things, you know, I kind of catch on to pretty quickly just because I have the, you know, I just have the the background in in understanding like, you know, what you need to say when you're. You're talking about elements of a crime. and Were you working when we had the, the riots in Austin and they were hitting the Capitol and doing all yeah. that? So what was that like? I was... Uh, you were new. I was a... Yeah, I had just gotten cut loose. Like, so I didn't have a training officer anymore. Um, it was... Chaos. I will, <laughs> I will never forget the day that... Like, like DPS has their shit lined out. Like okay. DPS is, despite the 
Austin news media's criticisms of DPS, like that is a highly functioning organization um, from from the way they show up, like pressed, like looking good mm-hmm. to like the way they conduct themselves. Like that is a quality organization. Um, so when you have like a lot of officer needs assistance called ONAs coming from the Capitol grounds from DPS because they're outnumbered and getting overrun. It's like, Oh fuck. Yeah. So we end up, um, they pull all of us that are working patrol down. I I think we went to, uh, Republic square and then we caravan in our patrol cars over to the Capitol. We parked in the Capitol, uh, parking lot and we went and we created like what we call mobile field force basically um to help dps because the capital was getting overrun and like i don't know what i'm doing i've been a police officer for five minutes right um and so i'm just like standing there and you know people are yelling but mostly at this point it's you know just name calling you know okay so i'm just standing there listening to people like berate me i can do that Try to provoke a response so that they can put you on YouTube. And so they, and we very specifically are trained at the academy. Like you have people yelling at you, you have, because you can't respond. Like you are the professional in that situation and you have to remain so. Um, And so staying there, whatever. Um, About two hours into that, they're like, Garner, Williams. They just start like picking people like, hey, come over here. Okay. Um, And I get... Basically, like, I'm dogpiled into a raid van. And I've just got, like, all these sweaty dudes, like, on me. And I'm like, you know, and I have, like, you know, I've got my riot helmet. Um, you know, first time I ever put it on. Um, and the next thing I know, the door to this fucking van opens. And I'm standing on I-35. I was like, oh, shit. What the fuck? And there are rocks. There are I mean, we are getting pelted by rioters. I mean, just like I still have dents in my riot helmet from being hit with a rock. Wow. And the only thing I had for so and at that point, all the 18 wheelers were stopped on 35. And so we were able to use them for cover. Um, but like there's still like it was both sides, like because there's like this grassy and like embankment that they, you can come up on the west side of 35 and then there's also this slope on the east side of 35 um so it was kind of coming from both directions and then they're like we have to get these 18 wheelers out of here like this is a major thoroughfare like we have to move traffic yeah so they leave we end up having to shut down the road because they swarm 35 i look up and there's a guy making a molotov cocktail that's a problem and i was like you know and again i'm like you know, five minute officer. I'm like, you know, like, uh, can I shoot this excuse guy? Me, um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, this man over here. Um, he's he threatening death by fire. Like, I think he's making a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> yeah. He and ain't going to drink it. Yeah. And so like, I'm just thinking, I'm like, you know, I do not remember this scenario. Yeah. The fucking police academy. <laughs> yeah. What am I doing? Right. And, um, you know, we had like, you know, we had pepper spray. We had, you know, less lethal shotguns, which I won't talk about, but, um, you know, we were doing everything we could. What people forget is that I-35 is the only way to access our trauma hospitals. Mm. So it is not a matter of like city pride that we're like, we have to keep this roadway clear and moving. 
Like it is truly the access point for trauma hospitals. Yeah. So like there is no like, oh, we'll just shut it down till things cool off because otherwise like we can't get people the medical care they need. Right. Um, so like it's more than just like. It becomes know, life and death. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think that people realize that when like we take what they perceive as like too much action to clear a roadway. Well, you know, there's a lot of consequences associated with this roadway not being active right now. Yeah. That like you as reg regular citizen just aren't considering. You're mad that you got hit with a beanbag and that guy's trying not to die right. before he can get through the street. And he's completely innocent in this whole thing. Right. Like. Right. He got in a car wreck. Right. Or whatever. Or he's having like, you know, a heart attack. A heart attack. Yeah. Or whatever it is. Like, um, and so, yeah, that was a wild day. I still do not even, sometimes I still can't even comprehend, like, just getting out of that raid van in the middle of I-35, I was, it was surreal to me. It's like, um. What the hell, guys? What? Yeah. <laughs> the fuck? Yeah. Um, and then for, I think, two, almost two months after that, we would work our regular patrol, because at that point, we were all downtown, Right. The rest of the city was left for none. There was looting. There, I mean, it was chaos. So we had to figure out a way to, like, maintain the correct, like, number of people downtown. But we couldn't just abandon the rest of the city indefinitely. So after that, we would work our regular patrol shifts, which we work four tens. Um, we would typically get held over um, for like four to six more hours. So we were working about 16 hours. And that, you know, that happens now because of staffing um, and just like late arrests. And, you know, I say we work four tens. Very few people at this place actually only work four tens. Just the chief did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the chief is like uh, 24 hours a day, seven days oh, a week. God. Like that job is Wouldn't want horrible. That yeah. Like my God. But um, then on your regular your RDOs, regular days off, you had to go to the training academy, park your car there, and you were then bused to our main headquarters to be mobile field force for the riots. So like nobody, it didn't matter what your rank, nobody had a day off for, I think we went over 40 days of that cycle. Wow. And it was a beating. I bet. Mm -hmm. Brand new officer stepped into that. Yeah. It was like, oh my God. What did I get into? Yeah. I just, it was wild. Mm -hmm. Was that kind of an exciting experience or were you like, what the fuck did I just get into? So at first, like. You're the tip of the spear. You're like, let's do yeah, this. This is I'm adrenaline like, rolling. Is, yeah, right. And then you're yeah. like, okay, it's been 30 days. Right. There is, I would say even like, I would say a week or two in, like there are only so many times you can hear people just spit vitriol at you yeah. before you're like, I need a break yeah. or I am going to respond in a way that is not ideal for me, yeah. this person or this agency. Yeah. And so then they would, we would like stand out there for 45 minutes and then we'd come inside for a break. Ro we'd had to have these like rotations because like... Standing out there, just, you know. How did you manage that? Like, 
(laughs) at some point you have to rely on the humor. Like, I will never forget this grown woman standing in front of me, looking me just dead in the eyes. (laughs) I don't know if you guys mark this as explicit, but this is about to be explicit. It's zero fucks. Let's go. Okay. Okay. And she looks at me and she goes, hey, bitch. And I'm just, I'm just saying it. She goes, I'm going to rip your pussy top to tail and show you what gangster is. Jesus. I said. Don't threaten me with a good time. I said, ma'am, <laughs> are you like, serious right now? And my supervisor was like, oh, that'll be enough, Garner. Like, you're done. <laughs> yeah. Like, bitch, I'm going to rip you, your pussy top to tail and show you my gangster. Wow. It's like, what does that like, even mean? Right. Like, and, how... I, and I was just like, huh? Cool. Yeah. Like, I dare you to touch me. Yeah. Like, I dare you. Please do. Yeah. Please, please give me? me that opportunity. Please touch me because then, then we'll really show you what. Did that. y'all have dogs or anything with you keeping the crowd line back? Where you just oh, with God, shields? No. Can you imagine? Like, the, I've seen some of them where they the brought dogs. Public dogs outroar here would absolutely yeah. like. The, you know, the buzz phrase of, you know, community values, having our canine. Uh, and truthfully, like our canine is not trained for crowd control. Yeah. Um, our mounted unit does crowd control. That's also very controversial. With the um, horses? Mm-hmm. Why is like, that controversial? Oh, because I think it's like violent and aggressive and that, you know. The crowd or the horses? The crowd. The the crowd thinks the like the the horses are violent. Anything horses, that's effective against them right. is against the yeah. rules, right? Yeah. So um, so yeah, we had shields, and we had our like sticks. You know, it's like get back. <laughs> yeah. What were they trying to achieve? So ultimately, like I think the like the grand plan, especially for like the local loud activists here in Austin, is like they want to abolish the police. So provoke you into an action that allows them to sue or inflict some sort of policy change mm-hmm. to disintegrate the police department. Yeah, yeah. Their goal is to basically mm. get rid of the police department. To use your own policies against you. It's the Geneva Convention, yeah. right? Like these Which, are the rules you must go by, but none of your enemies will. Right. And if they can entice you into breaking your own rules, we'll consume you ourselves. So, and that's, that's a hard like, thing to work under. It's almost impossible. And we're experiencing that now with like the use of a less lethal shotgun. Like, his, you know, historically, the less lethal shotgun is a very effective tool. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like I won't go into anything about like the protests, the riots, like, you know, the, everything going on with that because it's still, you know, an ongoing situation. Like we have 22 officers and indi- indicted for felonies. Really? Right now. Yeah. For using less than lethal force at the, department approved of yeah and they used provided. it they used it as they were trained to use it and they used it at the direction of supervisors um and we have 22 indicted officers that you know wow for felonies um it's it makes things very stressful is that serious or do you think more of a just a political move to to silence or to appease that mob? Like here they're indicted, we're gonna do the investigation, but there's really no grounding for I think to the district them. attorney here would do anything and everything he could to Build a- to find those officers guilty, to convict really? those officers. Yeah. We are in a very um the district attorney in Travis County right now is his whole platform was anti police. How like 
How does that, what's the long-term strategy for a district attorney who relies on the police to go out and find people for him to convict to then turn on the people that he relies on to provide him with a career? Yeah, so his, like, his long game is not necessarily to, like, convict people. And, and you know, just as kind of like a a matter of, like, how a district attorney, like, what their duty is. Like, okay. their duty is not to convict people. Their duty is to ensure that justice is served. So my definition of justice is probably very different than his. You Sounds know? that way. Yeah. Like, he, his platform is very much centered on, like, this, you know, kind of second chances, rehabilitation. Um, like, they are these criminals are victims of circumstance like we need to fix this problem from you know from the ground up which i'm not saying i disagree with like i do think there are certain things that like lead to criminality um i don't think that you get to be a criminal unchecked um i know like poverty whether it's you know socioeconomic whatever the situation is there are things that lead person lead a person to to a level of criminality that maybe somebody else wouldn't under different circumstances and creating a a different environment for them to be a successful part of of this community is ideal it's just not realistic right they're not stealing bread right and i will tell you that any i have come across very few people um but i have come across them that truly are s- stealing like basic necessities um won't go into like the demographics of who those people are. I have never arrested one of those people and I've always bought them a full cart of groceries because that is like, that is a an act of desperation to meet a basic human need. Mm. That is not pointing a gun at somebody and taking the money that they earned to send to their family while they were selling tamales right. on the side of the road right? and pistol whipping them. Like that is violence. Like that is, you know, targeting somebody that you know is vulnerable. Like, like you're going to jail. Yeah. But like you individual that just needed peanut butter and bread, like let's get you some groceries. Um, don't do that again. Yeah. Like if I catch you doing it again, like this isn't the route we're going to take. Right. Talk to me about the effect that's had on the department. You've mentioned the staffing shortage that Austin's dealing with. Yeah. Why is that going on and what are they doing to try to recruit? Yeah, so we have a recruiting issue. We have a retention issue. Um, right now we are, I actually heard um, a number of like uh, under best practices, the Austin Police Department should be operating with 2,230 officers. We are hovering around 1,480 right now. And based on rates of attrition and our ability to hire like that number is going to continue to drop um, and it's going to drop at a high rate and we are going to be facing a much bigger problem than we already are in um, unless something drastic changes. And I just, I don't, I can't even tell you what that drastic thing would need to be. Um, but we have a couple issues here in Austin specifically. Um, district attorney is one, like why would you want to come work somewhere that you put your uniform on every day and you live in fear of indictment. Now, I will tell you, like, if a police officer breaks the law, 
Like they should be held accountable as much as anybody else, if not more so. Like we have a special privilege, you know, in our profession. We are given the ability to take away somebody's freedom. Um, we we should be held to a higher standard. What we should not be is targeted by a progressive politician that doesn't believe police have like a place in in society. Mm. Um, so so that's one of the big things. Like, why would you not go work in Georgetown? Why would you not go work in Fluterville? Why would you not go work in Williamson County, Hayes County, like San Antonio even? Like their district attorney sucks too, but like they have, you know, they have a much more supportive community. Like yeah. Why would you not go work in these other places where there's a lower cost of living and your your freedom is not at stake in the same way that it may be here? Yeah. Um, the other issue we have is the high cost of living here in Austin. Um, I am one of the few people that live in Austin and work in Austin. Um, a, our officers can't afford to live here. Yeah. Um, the you know we have you know there is a national recruiting issue, like especially after the 2020 riots, like. We kind of have this, it's almost similar to like when, uh, like when my dad came home from Vietnam, like he was not treated as a hero. Yeah. He was treated as like the scum of the earth and that forever impacted him. Um, and that created a really big issue for recruitment for, you know, all of the armed Public forces. perception. Yeah. yeah. So it was a, it was a PR thing. And so then we had, you know, the whole like support our troops. We had the yellow ribbons. We had like, they made it okay again to support, you know, and obviously like 9-11 was a huge part of that, right? Like, how could you not support the people that are going to like, you know, intersect this, this group of people that just destroyed our world? Um, but we have a PR problem, like policing has a PR problem um, on a national level. And so, you know, there's going to have to be a shift in perception. Like you'll even see it um, in like, toy stores. Um, you see a lot of firefighting like toys. You see a lot of ambulances. Like you don't see the same number of like police toys hmm. as you used to. I hadn't thought about mm -hmm. that. Like yeah. you, like my niece and my nephews, like they think I'm cool. One of them doesn't, they think it's like a big joke. They're like, you're not a police officer. Like, you know, because, you know, I'm a girl and, you know, girls aren't police officers, but like, Generally, like, you don't see the same level of, like, you don't see little kids running up to cops, like, thinking we're heroes. Yeah. You see them running up to firefighters. Yeah. Um, like, you know, they see the big red truck and it's like. Yeah. I've had to talk to my own kid about it because he's like, I don't want to talk to the cops. They take you to jail. They're bad. I'm like, mm -hmm. what? No, like, and man. And where like, are they getting this? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm like, no, no. I mean, they could take you to jail if you don't listen to your father. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> But it's like, how do, you know, it? so if kids are getting this message, like, no one's going to want to be a cop. It's true. And then I feel like it becomes a cycle that, that inevitably spirals down, right? Mm -hmm. If nobody wants to be a cop, then the standards have to be lowered to acquire them, to recruit them. So the who are problem. the quality of people that yeah. you want to be officers? Because you're gonna get up, you're gonna end up with a bunch of GEDs mm -hmm. that didn't have any other option, and so they're being placed into positions of of severe power mm -hmm. and control and influence, 
And then you run into issues like Uvalde where they don't want to go in. They don't act. They don't act Mm -hmm. because maybe they weren't prepared or maybe they shouldn't have been hired in the first place. But there wasn't another cadet to choose from. Right. And you, you know, that was a big turning point for me where I'm like, what the fuck is going on, Mm -hmm. guys? Like there should have been a pile of dead cops in the doorway trying to get in there. So he didn't even have a round for another kid. Like what other moment do you dream about? Yeah, like in well, a job like yeah, that. like I'm not like obviously like I'm not. I would not wish a situation like that on anyone or anything, but I have zero hesitation that like I don't care if I'm by myself. I don't care if I have five people. I don't care if I have ten people. Yeah, like I am going in there. Yeah, and I am going to solve the problem yeah. because like we. And we even run this scenario at our academy where, um, like, you'll have somebody that, like, you put, it's like, okay, there's, like, you're go, you're driving to a call, um, it's at a school, somebody's there with a gun, and then, like, as you approach the, you know, the, the range or wherever this school is pretended to be, you start to hear rounds pop off. Mm-hmm. And, like, if you don't throw your car in park and haul ass in there, like, and, you know, put bullets on the bad guy like if you're like trying to get on the radio or you know look busy call yeah like you're like okay <laughs> Just, I'm, I'm waiting for backup it's like yeah like cut and it's like we need to go have a serious conversation oh yeah like if you are too scared in training to go in there like what are you doing here yeah and so um like i go out to our academy for role plays and um you know like i we still run that scenario. And like, we only graduated 19 people this last cadet class. Really? Mm-hmm. You had 60 in yours. 60, yeah. There's been classes of over 100 in the past. Right now, like our target is 120 per class and we graduated 19. Ouch. And I will forever, like I will forever say, like I will operate with less people as long as they are good people. Mm-hmm. Like don't give me somebody just because I need a warm body. Yeah. Because like, they're, you, they're almost more of a they are, liability. They are more of a liability. Yeah. Like, and every once in a while, in every class, like somebody will slip through the cracks, like they'll fly under the radar and then you get them out on the street and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, you're out of here, man. Yeah. Um, but, I couldn't imagine a better way to die than to hunt down the person mm-hmm. killing innocent children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to die eventually. You want it to be 80 years old laying yeah. on your bed thinking back at that one moment like that, I that you were tested, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Because it's like we all signed the dotted line. Right. If this opportunity comes or if I am placed in combat, I will do my job mm-hmm. as a Marine, as, mm-hmm. a, as a police officer. But you don't really have control over when it happens and if, if you're happens. working mm-hmm. that day or mm-hmm. if the gunfight happens on your patrol. Like all you can do is put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. But to have that opportunity and to miss it, yeah. like I... And you have to constantly have that conversation with yourself. Mm. Like you need to be... You gotta be checked in. Yeah, it, like am I still... Yeah. Like, am I still going to run into that building? Yeah. Am I still going to handle business when business needs to be handled? And like, if at any point, you know, you waver, like you have to have a really like frank conversation with yourself. Like, should I still be showing up for this job every day? I'm sure that's hard. Like you're looking, oh, I got 20 years for retirement. Mm -hmm. You know, I just need four more, but I'm really not feeling this job. Like I'm not as fast as I used to be. I'm not real calm. I don't shoot very... Yeah, like, I've done some training with some officers and some of them are legit. Mm-hmm. And then others, I'm like, man, you shouldn't even have a gun. 
Like what's happening right, right. now? Um, it's, it's like train. And they all, yeah. they're always averse to training. Mm-hmm. Like the ones that can't shoot stand in the back. Like, come on up here. Get like, up you here. need mm-hmm. to be here the most. Mm-hmm. No one here is going to talk shit or make fun of you, but you are not going to get better. But I will talk shit if you don't yeah, try. Don't even try. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that whole situation. There is like this weird dichotomy of like, you know, you have like the group of officers that's like training all the time. Train, train, mm-hmm. train. And it's like, they're good at it. Like they're good at what they're doing because they maintain their skills. And then you have this other group of that. It's like, my God, like, can you please train more? Like, just take a lap around the building. Just like, right just all. run, just run one lap, please. Or like, just, you know, go to the range one time, please. Just once. What just do you there. think that, the, is it, do they not face the need to use those skills enough to stay, to see the value in the training? I think that they don't, like, it's very hard, you know, for people to recognize when they are deficient. Mm. Um because like the people that you see training that are really good, like they probably were never deficient in that skill. Yeah. Like they were naturally good at it, right? I have to like very like diligently make myself train defensive tactics because like that is not something I naturally excel at. Yeah. Um, I have to be very like diligent about it. Um, exercise, like that's a pretty like normal habit for me. Um, so like that comes naturally to me. I um like I shoot well. Um I enjoy shooting, so I do shoot a lot. Um and so that skill like you know I I'm, I'm good. The one that I have to push myself the most to like get up and actually train is the one that I am the worst at. Sure. And that's defensive tactics. I think it's hard for anyone to constantly do the thing you're not getting a positive response from. Right. Right. That's the thing you're not good at. So it doesn't feel good Mm -hmm. to do it. I have this conversation with my kid all the time. It's like, we need to practice, man. Mm -hmm. Like, just like we throw the ball, just like we run, just like all the little things like your ABCs, like Mm -hmm. you got good at it. And then you wanted to go show everybody that you knew your ABCs, Mm -hmm. but they weren't in the bathtub while we were training for months teaching them to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that adults are the same way. Like if you're good at something, it's fun to do it because you're positive or the feedback is positive. But when you suck at it, you avoid it. Right. And that's the absolute wrong answer. And there's also this like intimidation factor of where like, you're like, I don't want to walk into a room with like the people that rely on me to like have their back out there and for them to think that like, oh God, like. To see that I suck at it. To see that I suck at something. (laughs) You know, but in reality, like. It actually is the opposite. It is. Like, you know. I want to see you in I there because see you in we all know you suck at it. Yeah. Everyone knows. It's and, not a secret. And I feel safer <laughs> yeah. knowing that you know you suck at it. Yeah. Because then I'm not running around thinking you have an unrealistic understanding of your capabilities. Absolutely. Um. So, but I do think that's just like a mental exercise that's difficult. Sure. It's human. It is. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody's that way. Are you married? No. No? You have a boyfriend? No. No? Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. I just wanted to see how you manage taking off those hats. Because, <laughs> like, for me, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was on a deployment. Seven months, I was in that zone. Mm-hmm. And then I come home, and I'm in a different zone. Yeah. You have to take that off and on daily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you manage that? So I have, like, a very, um, like, I love routine. Um, and I have a very, like like a it's like a visual it's visual cues basically like i don't go past a certain part of my house in uniform 
Really? Like I put my uniform on, like basically by the garage door. Like I put the uniform on there. Like all my gear like remains like ready there. Uh, Like my charging stations, everything is all there. And then, and it's also kind of like just a, like a hygiene thing. Yeah, it's also, yeah. (laughs) I don't want to like bring through my house. Like if I've like, you know, because a lot of the places I go in are not clean or there's like blood or whatever. Like, you know. So I take all of that, I put it on and I take it off before I go past a certain point point of my house. And like That's really it, that's good. Yeah. It sort of compartmentalizes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's mm-hmm. I had a real hard time with it, I feel. And some of it was just I don't know, not having a a clear and defined transition or a, a moment of hey these are the skills and these are the perspectives you got to put down now mm-hmm. and then come back and step into civilian life, particularly getting out of the military. How, how do you feel or what's your strategy for retirement? How do you, how are you going to put all of this down and then progress with your life? Cause it will end. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I'm watching a lot of officers struggle with and yeah. some of them stay too long because they have nothing else. Yeah. Um, that is very much a work in progress. For me, I don't have an answer for that right now. Um, you know, I, I think ha- watching is exactly the thing to do. Like where that that person, you know, mm-hmm. they probably should have left. Maybe yeah. that was the point for them. I need to be in, aware mm-hmm. of the point for me. Yeah. Um, and seeing who's successful and who's not. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope that like, you know, I have a relationship that, you know, kind of helps have something else to focus on. Um, you know, I don't have kids. I'm never going to have kids. But my niece and nephews, like, you know, I am hoping that, like, you know, they can be kind of, like, something that I focus on more, you know, at some point. You know, Why don't you want kids? I, I've never wanted kids. Yeah. <laughs> that is just not for me. That's a lot of work. I can understand. It is yeah. a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I mean, I told my mom, like, I think I was like five or six years old. And I was, I was like, not hey, um, I'm never having kids. And she's like, you know what? Like, there's no reason for somebody that doesn't want kids to have kids. Like, whatever. That's exactly true. If you don't want mm-hmm. them, definitely yeah. don't have them. And I was fortunate. Like, I didn't have any type of, like, parental pressure. Like, nobody is, like, trying to, like, you know, have a biological clock ticking on me. And I mean, like... I've just never felt it. Like I'm 38. So, and like never once have I been like, oh man, like I I have a change in perspective now. And I'm like, man, uh, especially my sister, I'm like, your life looks insane. And um, (laughs) her life looks insane. Your kids are wild. Um, I love them dearly. Um, But I'm going to go to my room now and close the door. Please tell them not to come in there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I remember my wife and I didn't have kids until late in life. We Mm -hmm. were probably, I was 33, I think. And so all of my friends had kids, you know, 20s, some of them in high school, you know, and I felt the same way. Just, it's fun to come play, but I really like going back to my quiet house. Yeah. And walking my dog Mm -hmm. that, you know, if he mouths off, I just stick him in the kennel. Right. Yeah. (laughs) They frown when you put your kids in a kennel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have a lot of freedom, you yeah. know, and I just kind of do what I want when I want. And um, that's cool. That's What's it. the long term goal? Do you want to do you want to be a detective? Do you want to get into the political side of things? You, you're a lawyer mm-hmm. as well. 
Maybe um, be the DA like, one you know, day and fix this place. Oh God, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> you know, pie the sky. Like if I could chart my territory, like I'd like to be the chief of police. Okay. Um, but kind of the the most like immediate goal is um, robbery detective and then homicide detective probably. Mm. Are there a lot of homicides in Austin? More homicides now than there have ever been historically. I heard that like it went up 18% or something in the last year or two. Yeah. So, um, you know, typically we had, you know, maybe 15 to 20 homicides a year. That was kind of average. Um, We, I think we passed 80 last year and the year before. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, Now, nationally, uh, violent crime increased during COVID, after COVID. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, like family, when you're cooped up with your family, like family violence kind of went through the roof. Um, you know, people losing their jobs, like not having, you know, access to the same types of outlets that you would have previously. Like there's a lot of like societal factors, federal. right? Yeah. Like, you know, people's mental health declining, all these things um, are contributing. But we're, we're still seeing that increase, you know. This is, you know, Austin still feels like a, a small town, but we're a big city with big city problems. Um, like I said, we're 10th largest city in the country. We're the capital of Texas. Like, you know, we are a big city with big city problems, but we do not have um, a city council that really recognizes that. Um, you know, violence prevention, like, you know, we there's this like, you know, violence interrupters type program. Like I fully support doing anything and everything we can to prevent violence. But again, the reality is like we have like juveniles with access to guns. Like we've got, you know, because we do not in this county prioritize or really prosecute um, like drug crimes unless unless they are like a high level, like, you know, distribution type um, individual. So like, they've just stopped prosecuting for any drug. Is it? I know weeds kind of become yeah, a gray area. Just nationally, nobody it, gives it a is. shit about. Nobody weed cares anymore. about weed. <clears throat> the thing is, is like a lot of homicides happen on what well, you know buying weed. Really? Yeah. Buying weed. Yeah. Like, like you can go to any vape shop and get mm-hmm. all these different f- flavors of. Yeah. They've divided THC into a million different comp, and they all do the same shit, and they're killing each other over weed. Yeah, but and like, and not just weed, right? But like, you know, dope rips. Like, you know, I'm gonna set up a a buy. I'm gonna, you know, on social media, I'm gonna use Snapchat or whatever they use. Like, I'm gonna go buy drugs from this person, um, and then when they get there, they're like, actually, no, I'm gonna take the drugs and I'm just gonna shoot this person. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't know. Bad for business. Yeah. Yeah, but again, we are not talking about criminal masterminds, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> these yeah, are like very like instant gratification yeah, situations. No ability to yeah see the future. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we have we have we have drugs just kind of rampantly running through the city. Um, I would love to believe that you know substance abuse treatment was a solution, but oftentimes it's not. Um, what is the city council doing to mitigate violence? As I've heard that they were sending out more like a, a, a family counselor or like a social worker instead of a police officer for certain category of crime. Is that what's happening? 
So, so not necessarily for crime. So, so the idea after like the 2020 riots and this kind of like defunding movement was that the police are doing jobs that they're not suited for. And I completely agree with that. Okay. Like I am not a social worker. Yeah. Like I happen to have this other degree that, you know, and I have aid, right? Like I have life experience that allows me to talk to people and um, like deescalate situations just because I have like human experience. But at the end of the day, like I am not a doctor. I am not a social worker. I am not a counselor. I am not a therapist. I'm not a substance abuse expert. I am none of those things. I am a cop. And like, I became a cop to put bad guys in jail. Like, at the end of the day, like, that is the purpose of being a cop. That's why I became a cop. That's why I want to be a cop. Um, When you, when the state law makes it where police officers are the only ones with the power to commit somebody without a court order, you kind of pigeonhole us into this responsibility in the mental health care cycle that we really aren't suited for. Yeah. Um, Like, would I prefer that a social worker go and talk to the person in the middle of a mental health crisis? 100%. Like, would I never, I would love to never go to a mental health call again in my life. But the problem is that oftentimes somebody in a mental health crisis is unpredictable, um, not necessarily violent towards somebody else, but they may be throwing things. They may um, be yelling. They may be doing something that a social worker is not equipped to handle. Like they may not feel safe being there helping this person, which is also reasonable. So in those instances where like a social worker may try to make contact with somebody in the community, oftentimes, just like fire and EMS, they're going to stage and wait for us to get there. So, like, the the logistics of actually implementing that type of response from other providers from a first responder perspective, like, is lost in translation to people that aren't out there doing it. I see. It's a hard job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great job, though. Yeah. 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 Well, no regrets. You sound like the right kind of person to be doing it. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I asked you yesterday if you had any kind of book recommendation, and you said you like to read. Yeah, I love to read. Um, so we also, so at APD, we have this, there's this group of us that we have this kind of like informal book club. Okay. Um, you know, just to brag about APD officers here for a second, um, we have a lot of just extremely smart people like we have a lot of people that you know just are like eager to learn want to be better like love love the job and want to just provide like the highest level of service to this community despite like what our reputation may be and so like this is a pretty large group of officers of all different ranks that participate in this kind of informal book club um and so the most recent thing we read was the comfort crisis um by michael easter and um I'm not saying it's my the favorite my favorite book I've ever read, um, but it was the premise is that as we've kind of evolved as a species, you know, with technological innovations, with urbanization, like we've taken away a lot of the kind of like fundamental like things that humans used to do, like 
you know, have to seek out food, have to like engage in community, have, you know, for kind of your basic needs. And because of that, like we are like less healthy. We are, you know, our mental health is declining. We are experiencing obesity at some of the highest rates. We are um, like our environment is tasked. Like we've taken away a lot of these things that used to keep us healthy in this basically in like pursuit of comfort and convenience. I read that when it was Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Have you ever read it? It's almost the same. Like he talks the same way. Like all of the things that we used to do to Mm -hmm. sustain life Mm -hmm. kept us busy. Right. And they were our challenge and Mm -hmm. our achievement in our day-to-day life. And we've simplified every one of those Mm -hmm. so much that we've now become consumed with all of these surrogate activities Mm -hmm. and these achievements is why people attach themselves to football teams. Mm -hmm. And they don't say they won. They say we won. We won, won, right. Right. Well, you ain't never played for the Cowboys. (laughs) Yeah. And they don't win anyway. So what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, they really don't. (laughs) God, they're awful. (laughs) But like that's what people do. And and because we've become so comfortable Mm -hmm. and I think it just – I think this is a cliche thing now, but the hard men make good times, good times make mm-hmm. hard times, that, that yeah. whole cycle of life. Um, and we're we're suffering now for a lot of the convenience that we've created. For sure. That's a good book. Mm-hmm. I'll have to put that one on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else you'd like to share? I think that's it. I think I appreciate you coming in. This yeah, was a really sure. awesome conversation. Yeah. I learned a whole bunch. This was great. Thank well, you for yeah, coming thank in. Thank you. It was a real pleasure appreciate to meet it. you. Yeah, you too.